The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of Armchair Politics. Uh, um, this week's uh, roundtable uh, with our roundtable regulars. On the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And uh, on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter joining us. Welcome back, Henry. Thank you, Tom. And last but not least, joining us for the roundtable this week, internationally known business executive with a master's degree from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and author of the new book, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation, Seth David Radwell. Seth, uh, welcome back. Thanks for uh, joining us this week. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. It's great to have you here, and I'd like to hear more about the book as we talked today as well. It sounds fascinating. Well, you can. Yes. Seth and I talk about it for a whole hour. You can find it in the archive. (laughs) Yes, we do. It's it's been, I'll just just say briefly with the invite that it's part of a three year investigation. I took a hiatus from my business career to investigate uh, in a historical tracing where our divisions come from. And I think you'd find it quite interesting. It's getting it's getting some good coverage now. And he actually sure. traces the the kind of divide that that we talk about regularly on this show, back to the revolution and beyond. Oh, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. It, it is interesting stuff. Yeah, I can't just wait to buy the book. Thank you. It just got a stellar review by Publishers Weekly, which I'm very excited about. That was just released yesterday. Very good. Yeah, Henry, um, we're getting that scratchy noise from your phone again. I'm sorry. I'll just have to... 
I, all my electronic equipment is off. So <laughs> uh, I'll just uh, dial out and dial back in. What's that? Okay. I hear it, too. Thank okay. you. Yep. All right. Henry will... Uh, well, now I'm still... Yeah, yeah I'm still, still getting some static, too. Could it be me? Let's see. Well, it sounds clear now. Yes, I'm yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, last week we had that noise going on throughout the uh throughout the show and I think we have uh, Henry back with us right now. Thank you. There, Henry's back. Um, Thank you. Okay, let's uh, let's let's move on. Lawmakers and top climate officials in President Joe Biden's administration sounded the alarm on Monday in response to a new report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, urging nations to swiftly limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. If senators truly followed the science in this report, we'd have 100 votes for climate action to match the 100% certainty that human-caused climate change is destroying our planet, Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts said in a statement. He added, this report must be the final warning to the world that time has run out to save the planet from dangerous and irreversible climate change. Has time run out, and is this the final warning? We're we're already at one point one degree Celsius. It certainly sounds worrisome, and it, you know what worries me most politically. This is hard to solve in a sense because if even if you could you could reduce emissions to zero tomorrow, you wouldn't see the results immediately. I mean, it would take years to go back to a yeah. fairly normal pattern. So, so if it's a politically hard sell. To say, well, we're going to cut back on emissions now, but in ten years or twenty years, you'll see some really good results. Those those exactly. kind of things are hard to sell. Exactly, I think that's very true. And you know, uh, for those people who don't believe in climate change, uh, there's some reasons why that justifies their reason. We're producing more carbon dioxide in the air, and carbon dioxide is a suppressant to fire, and yet. Um, uh, we're seeing all of these these uh, spontaneous fires uh, throughout the world. They're not just happening in California and our west, but they're happening all over the world. And that that is a signal. That's that's a scary signal that I believe that people will take heed to. Well, yes. twenty years ago, people were saying we needed to have our ducks in a row by now, or it would be too late. Um, and, and of course, uh, you know, people said, "Well, they're, you know, they're, they're doomers." Um, but uh, is is has time run out? Well, we're certainly seeing some nasty weather patterns in terms of higher temp, you know, record temperatures yeah. all over the place, higher water levels in many areas. Droughts in other areas that lay the groundwork for some of those fires out west and in Greece and and elsewhere. So we are seeing some results, it seems. You know, I'm really glad to see the Republicans transition from a a doubtful position and the business leaders where the problem was uh, now to be in agreement that there's something to climate change, and I believe that things would change. 
uh, is the young people uh, who now are focused and they would love all the rest of their lives for 100 years in this century. And, and they are looking at ways to, uh, to address that issue. They must. Yeah. In Ed Markey's uh, repo- re- remarks, the senator said that, um, he, you know, he clearly identifies it as human-caused. I've been saying for years, forget the blame game. You know, it doesn't matter if it's man-made or not and, and who's contributing it to it more than other people. If it exists, we have to deal with it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's right, and I think that's right, and, and, I, and I think that it's becoming clearer and clearer, you know, over the course of the last uh, many years that that um, this is this is related to our output of carbon and, and fossil fuels, and we can ignore it, but uh, it really is. I think the point was made. It's it's the problem is that action that we take today has benefits so far down the road, and today all you see is the sacrifice. But, you know, there's another uh, argument that's impeding this whole uh, situation. Now, you would think that uh, there would be um, a corresponding death of people due to this climate change. But they're still living longer, except COVID has interfered. We don't know how that um, Mm -hmm. matches. But the amount of CO2 and poisonous gases and water in the air should to suppress the population, but they, we don't see that yet. Well, That's but, but, when aren't it's too we, late. but are we seeing the beginnings of that? Oh, with, of course. You know, with, with course. people with, you know, respiratory ailments uh, on the rise and, um, you know, the, the impacts of uh, polluted water, which, you know, we experienced in, in Flint in a, in a very peculiar way. But, um, but all of these things are causing health concerns, and that can only lead to the deaths you're referring to, Henry. But there's no quality of life to walk around coughing and spitting up green stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's not a real quality of life that people around the world are looking forward to. So I but, believe but- that... You know, one way to sell this, though, is to really point out the fact that doing the right thing environmentally can be a very strong economic boost. I mean, if you if you can argue that maybe if you shut down the coal mines, you're going to open up a lot more wind farms or solar solar panel factories that may be far more economically beneficial than sticking with the old technology we've had for so long. Well, I, and I think there's, it's a, even, there's a case to be made in that direction. It might even be more yeah. basic than that, Paul. I had an astronomer on the show a few years ago, and we were talking about the life expectancy of various planets and stars. And um, he said, you know, when they talk about climate change and, and uh, you know, the world coming to an end, is the world's going to be here. What they're talking about is people coming to an end. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and if we that, don't, that's exactly right. If we don't take that to heart, you know that that really kind yeah. of trumps uh, stock prices. Right. Right. <laughs> Tom, can I come? Can I come in? Can I come in with you guys on a, on a point here? Because I think it's so vital to this yeah, issue. Yeah. Yeah. Go you ahead, know, please. 
one of one of the things I discuss a fair amount in American schism is the following the following observation. Over the last two hundred years, life expectancy has gone from thirty years to seventy years. Over the same time frame, two hundred years ago, one in five children didn't live till age five, and today almost all do. And furthermore, two hundred and fifty years ago, four fifths of the planet lived in extreme poverty, while today mm-hmm. one fifth does. My point being that all of these gains, I mean, modern society has benefited from our framework of embracing science and objective truth to such a degree that there's been more flourishing of human prosperity in the last, in the last 200 years than in the prior 2000. And I, I bring that up only because here's another example where I'm convinced that if we do embrace science and use our ingenuity as human, as human capacities allow, our God-given capacities, we can solve this problem, but we can't do it if we reject truth and science. And that's why, to me, the whole movement of rejecting climate change, where the science has become increasingly compelling over the years, seems like a ludicrous approach to me. I think we need to embrace the science and find out ways to build new industries and solve it. But I also think, Seth, that, you know, the the very statistics that you mentioned um, are are really a big part of why people are so addicted to the the conveniences, the technology, um, electricity, all of these things that have become part of our everyday life makes it so hard for people to change and and live differently. And, and, you know, here's... Here's another point. People believe that science is so advanced that if they get ill, all you have to do is go and buy a pill. And all of a sudden, miraculously, we are saved. There's that kind of mentality that walks among us. Mm -hmm. People don't Mm -hmm. believe very much. They believe only in science and what man can do or what humans can do. But that's limited because Small changes in the um, content of oxygen or CO2 or the heat of the earth or the characteristics of water or air will decide whether more people live than die or the reverse. It's true. Right? Just very small changes. Incremental changes. Yeah, and, and science yes. is always learning. It really is. Well, and uh, I think people, you know, some people, and, and I admit to being one of them, I keep holding out hope that science will come up with some some magic remedies, you know, some way of, you know, replacing the um, the things that are harmful with things that aren't, and, and that somehow we'll be able to... Um, invent our way out of this problem without having to make any personal sacrifices and unfortunately that's probably not true and in, in at the heart of uh, what senator Mackey was trying to get across we have to take a short break here and uh, let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in but we will be back with more armchair politics with our roundtable regulars paul rosicki and henry hatter joined by uh, author seth radwell for this week's uh, edition if you're listening to us on 92.1 LPFM in Flint. We're going to let them squeeze in uh, here. If uh, you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. 
So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by <laughs> author Seth Radwill. Uh, more than 1,600 people affected by the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center uh, in 2001 are asking President Joe Biden to refrain from coming to ground zero to mark the 20th anniversary of the event, which is just a month away from today, unless he releases documents and information related to the attacks, according to a letter released by the group. Despite numerous requests by Democratic and Republican members of Congress and hundreds of 9-11 family members imploring previous and now the current administration to bring transparency to the matter, these efforts have been rebuffed and the issue has remained Inex, uh, inexplicably ignored, the letter reads in part. We want to see tangible proof before the 20th anniversary of 9-11 that this administration is truly committed to transparency, said Brett Eagleson, the first signatory of the letter in a statement. These documents involve a terrorist attack that occurred 20 years ago and there is no justification to withhold them. Eagleson's father, Bruce, was killed in the attack on the World Trade Center. Is there any credible national security reason for withholding any of the information that has been uncovered about 9-11 in the last 20 years? Hmm. I don't think so. I don't know. <clears throat> I, I don't know. That's, that's the first I've heard this story. Time. I don't know. <clears throat> that happened a long time ago, and a lot of events have, have changed the course of uh, how we look at... Uh, terrorist attacks and stuff like that more people involved and the we know who the enemies are that we have to be particularly uh, aware of but the the truth should be told about the issue to the american people not just to the, the ones who have were victims but to the american people so that they can better be able to help create uh an environment that's conducive to helping the president and the administration keep us safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what they might have been. I mean, unless there were some embarrassing things that indicated some uh, uncomfortable ties with the Saudis at that time or something of that nature, I, I don't really know. It's just pure speculation. That's why it's, we should know. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Well, there have been some stories that were uncomfortable. Um, you know, the the uh, the Bush family um, right. flew members of uh, Osama bin Laden's family out of the country during that no-fly period following the attacks. Um, yeah. and and there were people that were at least a little bit upset about that and and yeah. curious about that and there have been other things that people have suggested i there was one uh, i had one guest uh, the author of uh, time couriers who um interestingly enough he was you, you know how executives get loaned to united way for their capital campaign 
Um, mm-hmm. He was working in that capacity, and his his uh, uh, target list were the insurance companies in the World Trade Center, and oh. his uh, it was his father or his grandfather worked in the original trade center in new orleans before it was moved to new york and so he he was pretty well studied on the whole situation but he believed that the attack was not on the u.s but on the world trade center itself um Mm -hmm. i i I never i i I could never fully support that because it didn't take into consideration the plane that hit the pentagon or the one that went down in pennsylvania but um but his his argument was that the group wasn't attacking the u.s per se they were attacking the world monetary system Hmm. i've never heard that that's interesting yeah yeah well the united states is the center of that monetary system an interesting sidebar to that story um, that that comes in two parts. Because the original World Trade Center was in New Orleans, there's still a building there called the World Trade Center. Oh. And Is that so? Yeah, it's become oh. kind of an office building. And, and it, it was started there because at the time New Orleans was such a, uh, an important port city. And, um, and then eventually it, it moved to New York. And um so for uh uh oh i'm trying i'm trying to think of his name um but but anyway for the uh for the the guy i was talking to um he said people in new orleans when they heard that the world trade center had been hit by an airplane they thought it was downtown (laughs) (laughs) It, it took a little while before it sunk in what really happened but one of the eeriest things was that his uh, his father, who you know worked as a maintenance guy in the in the World Trade Center building in New Orleans, found an artist's rendering of the World Trade Center, uh, like a, like a, a, a preview of what it was going to look like, and to scale it, they had airplanes circling the the towers. Mm. Which was a little bit eerie. Yeah, I'll say. Because the painting like predated the buildings. <clears throat> Sound like an X-Files story there, Tom. It, it, it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway, um, it's, uh, well, it's going to be interesting to see if there, if there are other anecdotes and, and other bits of information that are released about September 11th that might change the way we look at uh, at that event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, Senate Democrats released their budget resolution on Monday, which does not include an increase to the debt limit, kicking off a massive showdown on Capitol Hill and previewing the party's next steps following the passage of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. The budget resolution has a price tag of $3.5 trillion, 
and includes a series of tax increases and other offsets to help finance the sweeping plan. Though the majority of the legislation implementing the plan needs to be written as a dozen committees have instructions to start drafting legislation. Passing the budget resolution is just the first step, then it becomes the job of the committees to write the reconciliation bill. Does passing the infrastructure bill make it easier or harder to reconcile the federal budget? Hmm. Well, I, I think my sense is it's going to make it harder. And what yeah. happens is whenever, whenever they do these bills, they, they lay out, of course, a plan for how to fund the programs as they have in the infrastructure bill. But invariably, their estimates are always short of what's needed. And so they, they always end up adding to the deficit. Or I should say not always, usually. And so, you know, as, as optimistic as I would like to be that I think this is an, an incredibly important bill, meaning the infrastructure bill, I do think we have to find ways to pay for it. And I'm not sure that the current bill adequately does that. No, I don't think so. Uh, Ron Johnson, I, I believe he's from Arizona, or, or, yeah. or maybe, yeah. No, Arizona. He, uh, no, I'm Wisconsin. I'm sorry, with, he's with, the, with Wisconsin, I think. Okay. Uh, Janet Yellen uh, is proposing that we uh, be prepared to uh, lift the debt ceiling. So um, Johnson says no. He says that that would be bad. But that would add to a deficit out there. So you're going to deal with a deficit on the one hand, or you're going to raise the ceiling on the other. See, and now you sound like a real economist, Henry. Yeah, well, you know, we talk about this every year. We talk about this every year, about raising that debt ceiling and what that's doing to our Amer American uh, ability to remain a strong financial institution. So we're, we're spending ourselves to death. Yes. To poor health. Uh, I was going to say also politically, ha having passed one bill or supported one bill is going to make the second one tougher because people are going to say, well, you've got one victory. We're not going to give you two victories. So I think some folks who supported the first may not be inclined to come around and do it twice. Yeah, well, they have um, used up their political capital. Right. 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 Yeah. <clears throat> Now this this will be require some some doing on the part of Democrats because Republicans are already prepared to uh, not sign the raising the debt ceiling uh, because mm -hmm. they are of the 3.2 billion trillion dollar uh, spending bill infrastructure spending bill so uh, that Democrats will have to make some movement here. And I don't know whether that's going to solve any problems either, because we are already yeah. indebted to a point where we don't know what the next move should be. Well, and we're Democrat getting dangerously we're getting dangerously to that close to that that threshold where our our debt exceeds um, the GDP. GMP, yeah. Yeah, 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 and again, the last time we saw levels like that were during and right after World War II. And then it came down in the 50s. But, we, yeah, you're exactly right. We are getting close to that, that tipping point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, New York uh, 
Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does not know what her political future holds, and that includes whether she might challenge Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in a 2022 primary. Asked by CNN's Dana Bash if she is considering a campaign against her fellow New Yorker next year, Ocasio-Cortez said she had not seriously considered it, but also stopped short of ruling out a run. The prospect of a showdown showdown between the uh, New Yorkers next year has loomed over Capitol Hill for some time, but Ocasio-Cortez has not made any moves to set herself up for what would be a blockbuster campaign. And unlike other moderate congressional leaders, Schumer, first elected in 1998, has steered clear of criticizing his party's left flank at home or in Washington. In New York, he has aligned himself closely with progressives and has on Capitol Hill, along with Massachusetts Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, repeatedly called on President Joe Biden to unilaterally cancel all student debt, a top progressive priority. But with the compromises baked into the the bipartisan infrastructure deal, rankling progressives, Schumer's ability to bring home through a party-line vote a separate and more expensive reconciliation package demanded by progressives could make or break his standing with the party's left flank. Is AOC a threat to Schumer? AOC is a threat to everybody. She is, you know, she is, she's wonderful to watch because she's so smart. And she courageous, and to not be a part of the majority part of the population, she somehow is able to generate support from all segments of the population. She—that's she, what's incredible about her, and she may be able to, to uh, challenge humor, uh, but uh, she also may be moving too fast for age. And her uh, and, and her wisdom about governmental consequences may not. Uh, well, I agree with you, Henry. Good. She is absolutely fearless when it comes to campaigning and when it comes to getting out and speaking her mind. But the uh, the right flank of the GOP um, are are not big fans. I would say. Oh no! I I, guess <laughs> I think for that reason I I don't see her as a major threat, and I, I suspect. When push comes to shove, she's not going to run uh, against Schumer. But, uh, you know, it's always nice to think about it as a, as a daydream, but I just don't think it's going to happen realistically. And, again, it would do a lot of damage to the Democratic Party in New York if, if there was a, a full-blown battle between the two of them. Yeah, who could stop her? Well, there's another statewide seat in New York that just recently opened up. The governorship. <laughs> 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 Absolutely, that's interesting. Yeah. I I don't know if that's one that would appeal to her or not. I think Washington can become kind of magnetic to people. Yeah, and I think the same skills that make you an effective lawmaker and, and ideologue may not make you a good governor in some ways. I I think there are different sets of skills in a lot of ways too. But, but again, who knows? You know, stranger things have happened. But this infrastructure bill has posed a problem uh, for Cortez. It, it uh, exacerbates the Green New Deal thing. 
Uh, yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't go far enough for yeah. AOC yeah. and her support. Yeah, she wanted to go further than that. Yes. Yeah. So she's upset. Well, here's something so, coming right up. Four of the Republican candidates vying to replace California Governor Gavin Newsom in the September 14th recall election met on the dis uh, debate stage Wednesday night railing against COVID-19 mask mandates and accusing the Democrat of failing the state's business owners and school children by forcing closures during the worst of the pandemic. Businessman John Cox, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer, uh, Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, and former Representative Doug Ost all took part at the forum at the Richard Nixon uh, Pre Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Lim Linda, largely, uh, largely avoiding uh, taking shots at one another, but faulting Newsom's leadership for everything from the state's homelessness crisis to rising crime to the labor shortage. Um, do you think Governor Newsom is facing a real threat in his bid for re-election? Or, or, or to survive yes. this recall? Well, he's facing a threat. I don't know whether he's surviving, but he's facing a threat. I, I, I think he invariably is because of, of the perception of his handling of COVID, which was so erratic. Yeah, he's going to have some problems here, although having that many opponents may divide the opposition enough to allow him to, to survive. But yes. um, there's, there's no doubt that there's a lot of anger there. I doubt he'll have the showing that uh, Mike Duggan did uh, in the uh, in the Detroit mayoral primary. I don't know if you saw those those numbers, uh, Seth, but uh, the incumbent mayor in Detroit in a field of ten people uh, in the primary just uh, a week or two ago got seventy five percent of the vote. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm sure Newsom is not going to do that well. I don't no, think so. No, I think that we can bet on. Yeah, he'll, he'll be lucky to hit the 50% mark. Right. Um, that's right. Anyway, we've got about, uh, about five minutes before the break, and, of course, X-Files uh, coming up in the final segment of today's edition. Um, any any other stories from maybe from the last 24 hours or uh, that, that I missed in collecting my notes? I was a little rushed this week. Well, I, I, I'm fascinated by the story related to uh, some of the shenanigans that went on in the former Justice Department uh, related to uh, the, the activities around the election. And, I, you know, I, as much as I think we need to move forward, I do think that there's a set of objective uh, realities that's coming true. And uh, it seems to me the Democrats on the Hill are, are determined to get to the, the bottom of that are extremely troubling. <laughs> Well, and and is is there a conduit for for that information to become public? Yes, I think there there will be. First of all, I should I should preface this by saying this. You know, there's good news and there's bad news here. I mean, this, the shocking part is to the degree to which there were members of of Trump's team that uh, really tried to overthrow the the results of the election. The good news is that our institutions are strong, and that many uh, actors in the Justice Department would not go along. And as a consequence, uh, 
this what did this didn't happen. But I do think there there to your question, Tom, we're going to get to the bottom of it because they they now are going to uh, bring to testify some of the members of, of Trump's cabinet. And I think the Justice Department is also the current Justice Department under Merrick Garland has indicated they will allow Justice Department employees to testify. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I think there are some very, very worrisome things that we've learned about that process where they were, again, not just grumbling about the election, but, but taking some serious, trying to take serious action to essentially overthrow it uh, in, a, in a very, very, very odd kind of way. Um, and again, assuming, assuming those things are all true, it's, it's extremely troubling. We've, I, I can never recall any other election where you had quite the same kind of pattern where a losing candidate tried in such a concerted way to uh, deny the victory to his opponent. I, I mean, the, the interesting part is that there are letters that, have, that were written, that, you know, there are documents that, that show the, the approach that was taken. Yeah. Tom, if, if, we, if we had, if, if we go back five or ten years, and we heard a story like this, we would naturally assume we're talking about some other government somewhere. This could never happen in America. That, that, the, the notion of the sanctity of elections had been so accepted uh, for, 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 for centuries that, that it seemed almost impossible. I mean, you have to go back to the 1876 election that was contested to, to have something similar. Uh, so... It's, it's, it's amazing to me that, that we got to this point, and I do think that we need to understand what happened. Well, I'm going to slip in a, a little plug here for uh, tomorrow's show because there's uh, an author, Kenneth Ford McMallion, who has uh, just released uh, two books. They're, they're companion books. One is called Profiles in Courage in the Trump Era, and the other is Profiles in Cowardice in the Trump mm -hmm. era and mm. it and it talks about people who you know stood up against uh, um, in well in particular we'll just we'll just take the election results the big lie and so he talks about uh, Mitt Romney and um, Liz Cheney and Jeff Flake and Adam Kinzinger in the Profiles in Courage book and uh, he um, it talks about Mike Pence and uh, Mitch McConnell and others in the Profiles in Cowardice book. And uh, he's going to be a guest on the show tomorrow. I, I did the interview with him earlier this week, but it will air during tomorrow's show. And uh, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty interesting look back at uh, the people who were with him and the people who weren't during the, yeah. um, the Trump era. Sounds so, like an interesting interview. It, it is a good one, and it runs a tad long. It'll it'll take up pretty much the full hour. But uh, but anyway, I, I, we were so close to the subject, I thought it was a good time to get that plug in. This, and this is going to this. I mean, no matter how you, this is a fascinating part of our history. I mean, some of these things are just as as uh, Seth had mentioned. You, you imagine these in some kind of third world banana republic or something, but they're happening right here and now. Well, and and that's certainly true of what happened uh, on January sixth. Yeah, right. exactly. We never we never would have imagined we'd have seen that kind of uh, um, action. I mean, we've seen protests and we've seen violence in the streets, but but never an assault on the U.S. Yep. Capitol. I you know that's yeah. that that reaches a new height. Anyway, 
we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and lighten things up in the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics when we turn to those weird and wacky stories that I like to call the X-Files. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We've still got uh, lots more Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery 
is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back to the segment of Armchair Politics where we look at those weird and wacky stories that I call the X-Files. Prior to his killing, a judge is said to have sentenced famed outlaw Billy the Kid to hang until you are dead, dead, dead. Billy was rumored to respond and you can go to hell, hell, hell. Legends like these, some facts and others fiction, chronicling the kid's life have persisted more than a hundred years after his death, and they've kept history buffs captivated by Billy the Kid's tale. They have also driven interest in pieces of Wild West history for which collectors are prepared to pay hefty prices. In 2008, in 2008 for instance, Bonham sold... Uh, Billy's gun for $64,350. Billy the Kid, a gunslinger often said to have killed eight men, had been on the run for three months when Sheriff Pat Garrett hid in a dark bedroom and shot him in the chest on July 14, 1881 in Fort Sumner, New Mexico, according to Garrett's account. The single-action revolver Garrett used will be offered at Bonham's Auction House, which estimates it could go for two to three million dollars. Garrett had taken the gun from another member of the kid's gang, Billy Wilson, after he arrested him. If the gun that killed Billy the kid is going for two to three million, how much do you think I could get for the rope that hung Tom Dooley? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Hmm. It's amazing what those prices can bring, those things can bring in terms of prices. Well, I know, I, I, and I'm surprised at how little, comparatively, Billy the Kid's gun attracted. Yes, yes. That's strange. It is a little strange. Henry, I think you're uh, a little, little staticky again. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of static here. Well, if you're looking to spend money on a single piece of 40-year-old cake from someone else's wedding... Wow. Yeah, that's that's really bad. Bad. I think, I think it's Henry. Are you on? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'm getting nothing but static there for a while. 
Yeah, Henry, are, are you on the line? Yeah. Well, it seems it's 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 getting less. But uh, Henry, are you on the line with us? Yeah. Yes, I am. Okay, because we're getting a lot of static from your from your end. Okay. Anyway, are you still getting it? You still getting it? Well, it's better than it was. Okay. Thank you. Looking to if you're looking to spend money on a single piece piece of forty year old cake from someone else's wedding you're in luck um, if it sounds a little strange what if that wedding was the royal nuptials of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer a, a sliver of history is up for grabs courtesy of Dominic Winter Auctioneers the large slice of cake icing and marzipan base is from one of the whopping 23 official cakes made for the iconic July 1981 wedding and it certainly looks the part with a sugared onlay of the royal coat of arms in gold red blue and silver on top of a white icing base there's also a silver horseshoe and decorative borders along the top and bottom. The slice likely came from the side of a cake or the top of a single tier cake, according to the UK Auction House, and was probably sent to Clarence House for the consumption of the Queen Mother's staff. It ended up in the pose uh, possession of Moira Smith, an employee of the Queen Mother, and was originally sold to the auction house in 2008 on behalf of Smith's family. It's been sitting in a plastic-wrapped plastic cake tin ever since. It appears to be in exactly the same good condition as when originally sold, but uh, we advise against eating it, the website reads. What is it with royals and cake? Cake. <laughs> Royal cake. Well, famously, oh, Marie, Antoinette, Marie Antoinette would have a nice comment here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, a piece of the cake from her would be very, very valuable, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they didn't say how I much they expected the bidding to be, but... Uh... Yeah. Uh, imagine paying so much money for a cake you can't even taste. Yeah, oh, no. you re I was you were reading that. I was wondering how in the world do you preserve something that long? And if it's I mean, unless it's in a vacuum container or something, but how 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 does it survive that long? And well, in it, any kind it of did condition? say that there's there's some kind of a, a cake tin, and that the whole thing is sealed in plastic. Hmm. Um, but I don't know if that you know if that means saran wrap or plexiglass. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Or if it's been frozen, um, I don't know. There are ways wow. that they can take care of that through vacuums and, and then through refrigeration and through isolation and through infrared uh, lamps and stuff like that to keep down the, the growth of uh, bacteria. Yeah, I've saved I've saved a piece of cake for later, but never forty years later. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 right, right. Two, I mean, three I, days yeah, is kind of my limit. Wow. Well, here's well, now that you mention it. Did haven't have, haven't some of, some archaeologists found some 
wine or beer from ancient Egypt or something. I'm not sure it's drinkable or not, but I thought I've read somewhere along the line that some, something of that nature from, from that era was, was found, so maybe it can survive. Yeah, bacterial action is the cause of, uh, for decay <coughs> and transformation from alcohol into vinegar. <clears throat> so, well, here's, I think most uh, wines uh, transfer to vinegars. Here's, here's another strange one. An ocean expedition exploring more than a mile under the surface of the Atlantic captured a startlingly silly sight this week. A sponge that looked very much like SpongeBob SquarePants and right next to it a pink sea star, a doppelganger for Patrick, SpongeBob's dim-witted best friend. Christopher Ma was one of the scientists watching a live feed from a submersible launched off the NOAA ship Okeanos Explorer. He's a research associate, uh, associate at the National Museum of Natural History who frequently collaborates with NOAA. He's also an expert on starfish. Ma immediately noticed the underwater creature's resemblance to the animated buddies. They're just a dead ringer for the cartoon characters, Ma told NPR. So he tweeted an image of the two, noting the resemblance, delighting lots of folks. Someone helpfully added faces and legs. Rather than chilling together under the sea, Ma suspects a different reason for the creature's closeness. Sea stars like to feed on sponges. In all likelihood, the reason the starfish is right next to that sponge is because that sponge is just about to be devoured, at least <laughs> in part, he says. Or maybe not. The sponge might be uh, bright yellow because of its chemical defenses, Ma says. Um, does this mean that truth is stranger than fiction? And, and maybe we ought to tell sea stars to eat cake. <laughs> right. Stranger than fiction. Or sponge cake. That's true. Maybe cartoons pick up an awful lot from real, real, real life. Well, we're uh, pretty much at the end of uh, today's edition of Armchair Politics. Uh, that wraps up uh, the X Files portion. And uh, we just have about 30 seconds, so I want to make sure and thank our uh, special guest today, the author of American Schism, Seth Radwell. Seth, I hope you had a good time. It was terrific. Thank you guys so much for having me. And thank to you, Seth, and I want to follow up and, and make a point of reading the book and hearing the, the interview. And yes, so please, do I, please uh, reach, out, reach out to me. I'm happy to send you guys a copy of the book. And, uh, and, of course, to our roundtable regulars, it's always a treat. Thank you so much. Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. Thank you both, guys. Always good Thank to be you. here. Hurry back, Seth. Thank you. Okay, there's Smoke and George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner program, so be sure and tune in. Um, I want to say thanks again to uh, Matt DiPerno for uh, joining me uh, first thing this morning. And, of course, to our roundtable, uh, Paul Rosicki, Henry Hatter, and uh, joined this week by author Seth Radwell. So with that, uh, have a great day, folks, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show. 
and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.